Country Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, October 26th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On this week's financial show, we've got more earnings to get to. We've got a big bank looking to give a fintech company a run for its money. And we'll answer the question, or at least entertain the question, should banks be releasing reserves with so many questions still outstanding regarding the pandemic and, and the economic slowdown that we've been witnessing here in 2020? Of course, as always, we've got one to watch for the coming week. And joining me this week, it's not Matt Frankel, folks. It's Mr. John Maxfield. John, thanks for being here. Pleasure, Jason. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's wonderful to have you along here. I'm really excited to talk with you more about the banks and get your idea. You're, you're thinking here on the uh, the reserves questions, uh, particularly as as well as the J.P. Morgan Chase uh, fintech move there. But let's talk earnings first and foremost. We had a few uh, companies in our Foolish Universe report earnings last week, and uh, first up. It's a bank that I, I know you're a fan of, and it's a bank that Matt and I both like a lot. And we've actually had the president of Live Oak Bank on our show once, Mr. Huntley Garriott. Uh, but Live Oak Bank reported earnings recently. John, uh, give us a quick look at the quarter and your thoughts. All right, Jason, let me give a, let me give a short preamble sure. on Live Oak before talking about the quarter, okay? Um, so Live Oak, the way I think about Live Oak, is that it is run by, I, I think of them as kind of the, the Batman and Robin of banking innovation. And that's Chip Mahan and Neil Underwood, okay? Right. And so when you think about banking, what you typically think about is these like boring, slow moving kind of entities that are non-innovative, just kind of doing the same thing over and over again, making money from other people's money, right? right. Live Oak, totally different entity. So it is an incredibly innovative bank. And if you go back through Chip and Neil's history, you'll see that you'll see this popping up again and again and again. Chip founded the banks. He's taken banks public. He's founded other banks. He's then spun off uh, technology companies from those banks. He then came over and started Live Oak Bank and then spun off a big, really successful technology company from it. And so they have, not only do they have your typical kind of banking earnings type of stuff on their P&L or on their income statement, but they also have big potential bets in technology companies that given what's going on in the market can have a huge impact. And so what we've seen is we have seen that type of kind of global situation play out in Live Oak's uh, latest quarter. In fact, the, the last two quarters. So Live Oak is a bank, right? So they make loans, they take deposits and they make loans. But Live Oak's specialty is they make SBA loans. And you think like, okay, like, SBA loans are for small businesses. Like who's hurting right now? Small businesses, Lots right? Of That's gotta be horrible for Live Oak. No, it's not horrible for Live Oak. It's actually the exact opposite, right? Because you have two different things that came through in the past, what is it, seven months. The SBA came out with the Paycheck Prote Protection Program, so PPP, right? So these are loans to small businesses and they're basically like, the SBA is like, look, you make these loans to small businesses and you don't fire any employees at the end of, I think it was a 90 day period. We'll turn that loan into a grant. We'll just like give you that money, okay? The second element of this was that the SBA came in and said, look, like if the loans made between the end of March and the end of September, 
you don't, we will cover your interest and principal payments on this. So it takes all that pressure off of these small businesses. Yeah. Well, Live Oak is the number one SBA lender in the country. They do that without branches too, right? I mean, this is this is I mean, this is a tech to your point there is as far as innovation and tech goes, I mean, this is a branchless tech-based bank, right? I mean, that's they embrace technology in virtually every in virtually every regard. If you go back to its origin story, the thought process that look, we're gonna we're gonna go deep into one vertical, and that's gonna be veterinarians and make SBA loans to veterinarians. And we're just gonna go real deep into that, that vertical. To go really deep into that vertical, they're based in Wilmington, North Carolina. To go really deep in that vertical, you can't just be serving veterinarians in that area. You gotta serve no. veterinarians all over the country. So they had this idea of branches in the sky. Chip bought a couple, Chip Mahan bought a couple of jets and they were just flying people all over the country. <laughs> and so that's why their that tech focus was so important because it's like kind of like the, the glue that kept the whole, that put the whole thing together. Cause sure. you could, didn't matter where their people were, they could be originating and moving these, these loans along. Well, so if you look at the last quarter's earnings, their earnings were, I mean, it is like the right time, the right place and the right product, right? So their earnings were up. So what did they earn? They earned $34 million last year on a year over year basis. They earned, that was up like 767%, right? Now there's some, there's, there's noise in those numbers, right? Because they have these investments that they're constantly yeah. writing up and writing down. Um, but what was really, really interesting and really promising is if you look at their loan origination volume. So typically they originate about $500 million of loans a quarter. Last quarter is about a billion. Is a record quarter for them. And again, a lot of that is because they're doing these SBA loans. Yeah. Um, and not only that, but projecting forward, their pipeline is at an all-time high. So it's just really, really, I mean, it's just the perfect environment for them. And then the one other piece of this is that if you dig into what Chip and Neil are doing over there, um, they have a thing called Live Oak Ventures. I'm sure you and Matt have talked about Live Oak sure. Ventures. Mm -hmm. They've made these incredibly successful investments in a variety of different fintech companies. Encino being one of them, Encino went public in July. It was the second most successful tech IPO since 2005. Well, they have written up, they wrote up one big investment in that in the quarter, and that was in Greenlight, which is debit card for kids. Very um, familiar with that, by the way. We use that for our kids here at home, and they love it, and we love it as parents. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, that's exciting to me to know that they are actually behind that. Yeah, it's really cool. And then the other thing that they're doing, and this is what I think is really, really, really cool, Jason. So they've taken that Live Oak Ventures and they've created this new entity that is taking its place. And it's called, uh, I think it's Canopy Partners or Canopy Ventures. And they're doing this with Gene Ludwig, who is the former controller of the currency. Gene is like an incredibly entrepreneurial guy in the banking space too. He founded Promontory Inner Financial Networks. Okay. And what they do is they take, it's a it's this huge depository product. And it's this amazing thing that all these community banks all over the country use all the time to make sure that big deposits are insured. And they're going out and they've got 35 banks. Well, that's what it was when they when they announced it, are limited partners in this fund. And they're going to go out and invest in all of these new technologies. And so when you think about Live Oak, I would urge listeners to think about less as exclusively a bank and more as really a bet on innovation in the financial industry. 
Well, I like that thinking there. And, and given the, you know, given the reputation that banking has throughout, you know, time as being kind of that boring, stodgy, sort of just making money with other people's money sort of industry. I mean, to, to see banks like Libo getting out there and, and playing the role of innovator, particularly today when, 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 as you mentioned, small and medium-sized businesses, that's when they really need it most. Um, it, it's exciting to see. And, it, you know, I tell you, another, another bank that announced uh, earnings last week, and it, it, a bank that we follow here on the show uh, a good bit, Ameris Bank Corp. Uh, very similar in, in that um, it, it's a small bank focused focused really certainly on on the smaller businesses within its region and it, it has a rich history as being a community bank but it's grown it's made some acquisitions and if you go all the way back to the financial crisis of, of 2008 9 10 right when when everything seemed to be uh, seemed to be going south uh, Ameris was seen as one of the one of the smaller banks in in the region in Georgia that was that was serving a role as uh, as a savior almost right they were part of the solution not part of the problem so the FDIC actually saw a Ameris as a suitable uh, parent, so to speak, for rolling in all of these institutions that really needed some help, right? The FDIC made some pretty attractive offers there to say, listen, you, you bring these, these more or less failed institutions under your umbrella. We're going to make this basically a risk-free transaction for you. It'll be a way for you to get a little bit bigger. And, and also in the process, you'll be helping us out too by uh, ridding the system of some, some of the fat, so to speak. And, and what we've seen since then, I mean, Aris has, has had its ups and downs, but the bank itself has done uh, has continued to do well. It continues to, to grow and perform well. But if you look at some of the numbers from the quarter, uh, they reported adjusted net income of $117 million. That was $1.69 per share. Uh, that compared with $68.5 million uh, or $0.98 cents per share from the same period a year ago. Uh, they have continued to see healthy growth in, in mortgages. No surprise there, given where interest rates are today. Uh, nice to see as well the, the efficiency ratio, which is just a nice way of telling us you know, how, how the bank is spending its money and what, what it's doing with its money. Um, so lower is better. And we, we saw that efficiency ra uh, ratio now uh, down under 50% at just over 47%. And net interest margin pressure continues. But again, given, given the interest rate environment, that's, that's all banks would be in the same boat there. Um, one of the things that I continue to focus on with Ameris that I think is really encouraging, and it goes back to this acquisition they made of Fidelity um, a year or so ago, uh, it gave them great exposure to some commercial real estate markets in the Southeast, which is really nice. But what it also did, it really gave them this big boost to their non-interest bearing deposits. And, and you, you figure that those non-interest bearing deposits, I mean, that's that's great for a bank because that's essentially free money for them, right? They, they don't have to pay anything to be holding onto that money. So, so now you've seen non-interest bearing deposits closing in on 37% of total deposits. That's up from just under 30% a year ago. Uh, and then that really was part of the rationale behind that fidelity acquisition at the time they made it. And uh, you know, finally, we've been talking about the, the potential for ongoing M&A in the space and, and management there at Ameris feels like there is a little bit of a coiled spring there. They're going to see some M&A activity as things start to, start to improve here. And, and they definitely... Uh, want to be a part of that. So, so I think it's, it's, it's a safe assumption that Ameris will grow via acquisition, and they seem to be very focused on making sure that those acquisitions um, 
are, are, are in alignment with their culture. And, and that to me uh, makes, makes, uh, makes all the sense in the world. And it seems like they really uh, have been successful with that Fidelity acquisition uh, to, to date. And, and a lot of that I think has to do with the fact that it was two very similar cultures coming together. So, uh, you know, for those of you who are interested in Maris or own Bear, uh, Maris Bank Core like I do, um, I think you can feel really good about the quarter and knowing that the management just continues to do what they tell us they're going to do. Um, and that's a big priority in my book. Uh, John, let's wrap up earnings season here real quick. American Express, another little bank. <laughs> uh, maybe not little, but technically, yes, a bank, as many listeners probably know, but maybe some don't. Uh, tell us a little bit about American Express's quarter and what stuck out to you. So American Express is American Express, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is a big, solid, well-run company that's been well-run through many, 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 many cycles. Right. And it's a credit card company too, in large part, right? You have a bank and oh, you yeah. have like this other element is this credit card element. Right. And then like, they of course hold this portfolio of those loans. Right. Which is one of the differences with American Express's business model. So, you know, we you think about what's going on in the economy right now. You see that exactly in American Express's earnings. Right. So their revenues were down about 20% year over year, net income down about 40% year over year. And so you say like, okay, Here's what's interesting about American Express. So when you talk about a bank, you have two elements, two kind of big, big P&L elements or income statement elements. You have um, the money that they're bringing in, right? You have, you have your revenue, but then you also have this kind of a flank that is your credit exposure. And because banks, your typical bank is leveraged 10 to one, I mean, you have to be so right on your credit decisions all the time or else you are in, you know, you are, you know, under the threat of insolvency at all time, particularly at a time like this, right? Yeah. I, I, one, I did the math one time, Jason. And if you want to perform as literally like a top performing bank, like an M&T type of situation, a PNC type of situation, you can make no more than, you can write off no more than half a percent of your loans through an entire cycle on an annualized basis through an entire cycle. So wow. think about that. That means you got to get a 99.5% on your test every single year. <laughs> and that's like, it's not easy, right? No. It's just, that's just not easy. Not well, American ex- Right. And so client selection is really, customer selection is super duper important. And that's where American Express shines, right? Because they go after high-end consumers and businesses for their card business, right? And so yeah. when you think about that, that means these folks have bigger balance sheets. When you think about bigger balance sheets, that means they can survive cycles better. Right, so that that protects American Express on the downside. What has hurt American Express in the latest quarter, though, is that if you go through and you look at the spending, consumer spending patterns by income group. Okay, let me pull these numbers up. This is really interesting. All right, right now, if you go back to January, all right, you look at your low income group of, of consumers. Their spending compared to January's on an annualized basis is up nearly a percent. It's up. Wow. Nearly a percent. In this environment, you look at your middle income, down 4% compared to January. You look at your high income, down seven and a half, down about seven and a half percent. And that's where American Express, that's their specialty. It's in that high, high-end consumer group. And not only that, it's within the corporate group where you have corporate cards, people paying at restaurants, people paying for flights, people paying for hotels all those things are down. And so that's why American Express's earnings were down and revenue and earnings were down last quarter. 
But the important thing to remember, and like, you know, the Motley Fool, we are long-term investors. I mean, this is just, this is a solid company. It's going to yeah. make it through this just fine. Um, 10 years from now, you'll look back, it'll be a tiny blip in American Express's history. Do you feel like, you know, with American Express, and I, you know, man, I say this is, is a you know cardholder for, I don't know, 15 years or something, it feels like now. I've, I've always enjoyed having that card because it's always been very reliable, particularly as a travel card. You know, you, you go somewhere like, Costa Rica or wherever you may go. I mean, you just, you don't have to worry about that card being shut down, right? I mean, the customer service level to my, to my experiences, at least, I mean, American Express has been, has been heads above all, all else in, in, in regard to customer service, which is one of the reasons why I keep the card. Um, but, but it does feel like they've had to really figure out a way to grow in, in the recent years by, by reaching out to that consumer demographic that they haven't traditionally met the needs of before do you, do you feel like they are being successful and it's just slow going or do you feel like they're doing enough do you feel like they need to do more in that regard okay that's a really good question um i mean we, you, you go back a couple i i can't remember right now now that you ask i can't remember the exact when that happened when that costco membership fell off yeah in the consumer mm-hmm. segment that really took a bite out of their consumer segment now they retained a bunch of those accounts um but you know that shifting patterns, that that spending pattern shifted over to other cards. So that that hurts them in the consumer segment. Um, is it a prudent strategy going forward for American Express? Look, I mean, I'm not going to money morning quarterback American Express because they are really sophisticated. You know what sure. I mean? Like, yeah. this is a they they got all the data. They're making I I trust they're making really smart decisions. They made smart decisions along the way through the years through multiple cycles. So I mean, this is one of those situations where there are now we can, when when we get to talk when we get to the end of the sec this the segment and talk about credit losses. I think there are reasons to, I think you can money morning quarterback in some situations. The American Express is not one I would feel comfortable just because I feel like they know so much more about this and they've had a history of such prudent decision making. Sure, yeah, I mean that's the benefits of that closed loop system like we've talked about before. Very different than something like a Visa or a Mastercard. They don't, you know, Visa and Mastercard they don't they don't subject themselves to that credit risk like American Express does. That has its puts and takes. Um, but but certainly, uh, yeah, to your point, I mean American Express has a long history of. of doing a lot of good stuff. So uh, yeah, it, it, it's one of those companies where you feel really good about taking that longer view because you, you can deal with sort of the peaks and troughs um, given whatever the, the macroeconomic conditions may be, may be uh, you, know, you know, bringing to us as investors. But uh, you know, American Express, strong brand, uh, rich history of, of I, I think, innovating within the space and also obviously using, using data to make good decisions. And, and it's, it's worked out well for them uh, to, to this point. Uh, okay, let's, let's pivot here and talk a little bit about this, this story we were looking at over the weekend, because I, I found this to be fascinating from a number of different perspectives. And, and I, have my, I have my take on this, but, but you know, we're going to get to your take first, John. I want, I want to hear what you have to say about this, because I, 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 to me, I'm a little bit surprised it took this long, to be honest with you. But J.P. Morgan Chase has plans to take on fintech companies like Square and PayPal, and, and let's throw Stripe in there to, to some extent, um, even though it's not a publicly traded company. It still plays in that sandbox. But J.P. Morgan Chase wants to get out there with smartphone card readers. They want to sell customers on faster deposits uh, for merchants. I mean, they're trying to get into this space. And um, it, it certainly seems like on the surface, you've got a very big bank with what seems like a limitless pool of resources. 
what do you think? I mean, is, is this something Square and PayPal need to be worried about or, or not? Well, I think you'd be silly not to be worried about it if you were Square and PayPal, right? I mean, to your point, I mean, what is JP Morgan? They make their revenue over trailing 12 months is $119 billion. <laughs> you oh, know yeah, what I mean? Like just, any, yeah, I mean, like any time it moves into a space, <laughs> I would be worried. Yeah, Square's, Square's top line is a rounding error for J.P. Yeah. Morgan at this point. So let's just, you know, that ought, that ought to put it all into perspective, I think. <laughs> yeah. You know, Bill Dimchek, who I think is like the literally the smartest banker, not, maybe not the most intelligent, like on an IQ scale, but like everything he says is so spot on. And he made a comment a couple of quarters ago, who someone was talking about fintech companies. Like, are you worried about fintech companies? He says, like, look, like we spent a billion dollars on this stuff a quarter or a year, well, I don't remember what, what it was, a quarter or a year. And he said, we could build anything that they make in a week. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. okay, that's a very good point. <laughs> you know exactly. I mean? um, but so should Square be worried? I mean, like, yes, it should be worried. Does that necessarily mean JP Morgan's going to succeed? No, right? I mean, like, yeah. we think back that, remember that app they released for millennials? I think they called it Finn. And it fell on oh, its yeah, face. Yeah, yeah. fell on its yep. face. So it's, it's no guarantee. And Square has a good brand. I mean, Very. small business owners love Square. And so the question is, is like, is it too entrenched for JP Morgan to move into that? Or the other question is that like, so JP Morgan has something like 3 million small business customers. Like, are they going to be able to get those 3 million small business customers to, to get off of Square and come over to its product? And if they can, you know, get those benefits using those benefits that you mentioned as kind of a sales kind of pitch. And if they can, can they use this as a beachhead to erode Square's dominance in that space, don't know the question, but um, certainly it'll be interesting to it'll be interesting to watch. But it, it, is it a big deal to J.P. Morgan? No, I mean, yeah. like it's this is a round. Your point is a rounding error for them. I do think it's a big deal for for Square in particular. Yeah, it makes me wonder if if the powers that be at J.P. Morgan. regret maybe not jumping in there and trying to acquire something like Square. You know, a few years back when it was a little bit more affordable. Um, but, but I mean, clearly, yeah, to your point there, I mean, Square's success to this point. I, I think the one thing, I mean, my, my general perspective is, is that, you know, the investing landscape is, is it's a very rich history of large incumbents with, with endless capital resources, you know, trying to jump into a space like JP Morgan Chase is trying to jump into to Square's uh, space here. And and they they don't necessarily witness the same kind of success as you might think, given given their size and capital resources. And I think a lot of that goes back to something you mentioned in, in actually talking customers to switch over. You know, I mean, is is it saying okay, we have better hardware? I find that hard to believe they're going to make better hardware than Squares Squares been working on because they've been doing it for so long. So so what's the other thing they can try? The, the other carrot thing and dangle is faster funding, right? And and that I that I certainly understand. I mean, hey, the, the sooner you can get money into the hands of the people that, that needed or wanted that, that that's a that's a value proposition for sure now that, that's also you know something that square has been focused on since day one as well I mean uh, it, as it stands right now customers have to pay a little bit for that faster funding but my suspicion is over time as with most of the costs in this finance space as, as money goes from point A to point B those costs are all coming down so I think it's inevitable that at some point or another for Square, they're not going to be able to get away with charging any kind of a convenience fee or you know, additional you know, fee to get you your money faster. I mean, it seems like these costs are all coming down anyway, but, but it really does boil down to 
uh, Square being kind of two companies, they've got the hardware, but really I think what drives what drives the ship, so to speak, is the software. And I think that's going to make the switching. There's some material switching costs that can come from good software and good customer, uh, you know, experiences over time. And I think that's that's a tougher thing to compete with, you know, all the capital resources in the world. That, that that's a that's a more difficult thing to compete with. Yeah, and what, and I'm sure you've talked about this on the show many times, but um, let me make two points actually. The one is that Square's business model is amazing. Like it's just an amazing business model, right? So you go out, who who do you want to make loans to? If you're a if you're a highly scalable business, it's like Square, right? Who do you want to make loans to? You want to make loans to small businesses because there's tons of small businesses, <laughs> yeah. right? So how do you make loans to small businesses? What's the principal key there? Well, small businesses are super duper risky, super duper risky. I don't know what the stats are, but I mean, like, like new restaurants. I mean, they, I mean, they like, I don't know what. It's like forty percent, fifty percent, sixty percent failure rate. I mean, super risky business, right? Food carts, things like that. You know, little merchants at, you know, Saturday markets, things like that. But Square, and so you don't want to necessarily, as a general rule, just go out and start making loans to these companies, which can be really profitable, right? Because your yield on them is higher because the inherent risk is higher. So it's like it's like the Valhalla of making loans if you can do it safely. Well, Square has all of that data. They have all of their cash flow data. And so they can come in, they can look at all their square, the, all that cash flow and come in and be like, okay, we're going to loan to you. And like, they can almost take all of the risk out of it because they know the cash flow so, so well. And that's where Square is really going to, really, really going to do well. That's the one, that's the first point. The second point is that just a broader point about financial technology companies. There's this narrative in banking. And we, I can, can go back to the beginning of like what I was talking about with, with LiveOak. The banks are these like slow-moving, non-innovative companies, right? So you go, you talk to a fintech exec, right? He's like, okay, Mr. Fintech exec or Mrs. Fintech exec, um, tell me what your thesis is. Their thesis is, okay, banks are horrible at, at innovating. Banks treat their customers horribly. Banks are too slow, too old, blah, 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 right? You say, okay, I'm like, I'm with you. So now tell me, tell me about your company. Okay, we've been around for 18 months. You know, we're not profitable. In fact, not only we don't even generate any revenue. You think like you understand that like the oldest bank in this country was founded by Alexander Hamilton, right? And you go into Bank of New York Mellon's headquarters in downtown New York, you're not gonna think that these are unsophisticated people. No. Point being is that like banks are are forced to be reckoned with in technology space and they're really they've been very good at evolving through this through the years yeah yeah i agree uh, well speaking of banks let's get to our final story of the day here this is one that i i actually was really i was a bit conflicted on how to feel about this john because i mean on the one hand it feels like hey maybe this is a sign that things are getting better but yet on the other hand i mean you know I understand the desire to be sort of a financially conservative guy and you want to just try to make sure you've got all your bases covered. And, and, and with banks, I mean, that's kind of part of their job is to make sure they've got all their bases covered. And, and it certainly sounds like, at least from, from this story, that there are some banks out there that are starting to release these loan loss reserves, right? The banks, which typically they're going to set aside loan loss reserves. This has been a big narrative here over the past couple of quarters where we're seeing just billions and billions of dollars being set aside for potential losses. And, and I think the potential in most cases is probably pretty high, um, but it, it does seem like maybe some banks are, are feeling a little bit more, let's just say glass half full about the situation. So we've got some 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 noteworthy banks out there. Fifth Third is, is one that, that are starting to, to release some of these loan loss reserves. I mean, what's your gut reaction to reading this? Crazy. <laughs> don't 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 cupcake it, John. Tell me what you really think. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Uh, and I'll tell you why. And 
Okay, so this is one of those situations where, as a general rule, I think it's important as an investor on the outside where you don't have the data, you to act with an immense amount of humility. Okay, it's easy to look on the outside and be like, oh, this company, they don't know what they're doing, blah, 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 blah. Okay, like you should, you have to understand that these people do this all day, every day, all week. You know what I mean? And particularly when you get to these big companies, these are sophisticated people with a lot of data. They hire a lot of smart people to analyze this stuff. Okay, so as a general rule, Monday morning quarterbacking, you should, one should exercise humility. There are exceptions to that. I believe this is an exception. Okay, so the way that this works is that if you think about, you come into a crisis, uh, loans don't start going bad immediately. Right. Okay. The economy deteriorates, unemployment deteriorates. Then you start seeing delinquencies. People can't pay their credit cards. People can't pay their mortgages. Business kids, businesses can't pay their mortgages. Businesses can't pay on their lines of credit. But that that's a, there's a lag. But as soon as a bank sees that, sees in unemployment and things like that, GDP start to fall, they will immediately start to set aside money. They'll start to take provisions for loan loss reserves. Okay, They set aside money and say, okay, we think we're going to experience this much. This, this percentage of our loan is going to go bad or this dollar amount of our loan is going to go bad. Let's put this away right now to prepare for that. Right? And so they do that early. And then as you get deep into a, deeper and deeper and deeper into a crisis, like you, that kind of starts to tailor off. Well, it's really important at the beginning of a crisis to take as much as you absolutely can, because what you can do is you can just charge off all of your earnings, all that money you're making. You just set that aside as a loan loss reserve. Yeah. Okay. You just set that aside. So if you can do that at the beginning and the crisis gets really bad, you have more quarters through which to do that. Okay. On the other side of that, if you are real aggressive and they call it taking a big bath, if you take a big bath at the beginning and it turns out that you overestimated what was happening, right? And it doesn't turn out that bad. Well, then what happens is you start to release these reserves on your income statement. So you charge those back, but you charge them back not as an expense, but as income. So boost your, your earnings. For, it can do it for years. There were banks after the financial crisis that their earnings were boosted for like eight years. <laughs> it's just because, because they're they, putting money back in they've already reserved. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's a nice right? gig and if so, you can get it, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, it's, it's a great gig, right? Because it's like, it just boosts your earnings for all those years. And so, and you can do it, you can do it kind of strategically, factoring in taxes and things like that. Well, the thing is that right now where we're at, we're still in the price, we're still in that point where we don't know what's going to happen. Like, yeah. yeah, credit losses are like zero. They're like nil. Live Oak, if you look at their credit, they're literally, their delinquencies were 0%. But that's because we've had such immense fiscal monetary stimulus come in. We don't know what's going to happen with that. So the smart thing to do when you're running a highly, highly leveraged institution where the margin for error is slim to none is to be uber conservative. And so you go out and you say, okay, let's go and look at what the really conservative, really well-run banks have been doing with their loan loss pr provisions. You look at your MTs, you look at your JP Morgans, you look at your PNCs. They're all like on their conference calls, they're like, ah, uh, we don't know what's gonna happen. You know what I mean? Like this could get really ugly or it could be yeah. fine. We don't know, but like we're not playing around. So we're gonna go, we're gonna be aggressive about this. We're gonna be prudent about this. We're gonna set these things aside. Then you have a couple of these banks that have come in and started releasing reserves. And once I say release reserves, there's two levels of releasing. You can release reserves by setting aside less than a provision as you charge off. Okay, so that's one way to release reserves. Um, but you can also release reserves, you know, to take it to the next level is where you're actually recording a negative provision on your income statement, where it's actually benefiting. And so there's two major banks that did this last quarter. And that's Fifth Third and Umqua. Umqua is my hometown of Portland. 
Right. Now, I don't want to say anything too negative about <laughs> these guys. Okay. I've had a chance to get to know the CEOs of both of those companies. Okay. And like they're nice guys and all that. But I find the decision to start releasing reserves this early in the crisis, I, it, it's just confounding to me. It makes no sense because it doesn't do you any good because your valuations are already hit by what's going on. Just save that for later. And if it gets great later, release them later, let your earnings fly with everybody else's. If it gets worse, you're prepared for it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I wonder, you know, and we pride ourselves on all of our shows and not taking the political angle for myriad reasons. Um, but I, I do wonder when I see something like this, I mean, obviously we're still in a position where, where the, the, the Congress has not been able to reach a deal regarding stimulus. You got to feel like at some point they will, hopefully. But, but again, you, to your point, we really don't know. You don't know until you do know. Do you feel like maybe this is just a bet on management's part? They're thinking that it's going to happen at some point. It's just a matter of time. Okay. So first slice at that in no way, shape or form should a bank because it's so highly leveraged be making bets like that directional yeah. bets. It's just, that's just, you just don't do that. That's what well, you do that, but then banks fail. 17,000 plus banks have failed since the modern American banking industry came into form in the civil war. That's over hundred years. The reason is the, a lot of times is because they're making directional bets like that, yeah. whether it's on real estate, whatever it is. Okay. You don't do that in banking. That's just not what you do. That's not what the smart banks do. The smart banks, they just don't take any risk ever. That's just what, you know what I mean? And you, you earn a 12% return on equity you're, every year. Just bang, 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 bang. 12% return on equity. You do that. You double your investor's money every six years. It's just like clockwork. Okay. Um, so that, 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 that's the one thing I would say. And the other thing I would say is that to your point, I mean, gaming this out, how this is going to go, I mean, Jason, yeah, I mean, like, how do you game it out? Like, so let's say Biden takes the White House, but the Republicans, the Republicans keep control of the Senate. I mean, what does that mean? What does that do to the odds of something going through? Now, if Democrats take everything, the odds of something going through is pretty good. Probably a pretty big package. But you have a split situation, and like, nobody can model. I mean, nobody can guess that. I mean, you're just basically at some point you're just flipping a coin, and you don't want risk managers flipping coins. Yeah, not yep, when they're using federally insured deposits, certainly. Yeah, and I mean, that's to your point. I mean, that's. It, not all investments are the same. You invest in certain companies for certain reasons. I mean, you're not typically investing in your banks trying to recognize like those SaaS style gains, right? I mean, the banks, financials are going to hold a part of your portfolio for a certain reason. And so, yeah, I, I can I can certainly appreciate that. You'd be looking for those for those banks to to behave accordingly. So yeah, that's going to be something something certainly worth keeping an eye on, especially as not only this earnings season rolls out, but but subsequent earnings season, see how these how these management teams are feeling about the reserves. And uh, well, you know, we'll keep an eye on that trend uh, to see if it's something that uh, that continues to gain steam. Let's, let's, let's hope it doesn't. I think I'd rather see him uh, be a little bit more prudent than not. But um, John, before we wrap it up this week, we always like to throw a stock out to our listeners, a stock that we're watching for the coming week for whatever reason. And so I'm going to let you start here. What's your one to watch for this coming week? Okay. My one to watch right now is not just for the week. It's like the one I'm watching right All now. Right. And, and so I, I'm in, I do banking stuff. I write about banking. I watch banks and see what they're doing. Let's see what's going on in the industry. And I mentioned this company earlier when I was talking about Live Oak and Encino. This, this, this digitization of the financial services industry is a big thing and it's a real thing. Okay, there have been changes in the past where like phone banking came out, all these other things came out. People are like, oh, banks are going away forever, blah, blah, blah. It never came to fruition. The same things are being said right now. Banks, branches are going away, blah, blah, blah. Like 
now it is more real than it has ever been. I don't think branches will ever go away, but like if you see the trend in branch counts, I mean, it is having a huge, this digital banking is having a huge impact. And the COVID situation has accelerated that. It's like the Cambrian explosion in evolution, okay? One, and you, then you, so you step back from that, you say, okay, let's look, let's step on the other side of that, like a kind of a picks and shovels type analysis. Like who is selling the picks and the shovels? Who's really gonna benefit from this? And there are two companies in the financial financial technology space outside of your big, the oligarch, like the oligarchs that are running like your cores, like your Fiserv's, um, your FIS, those companies, right? Your Jack Henry's. Outside of those companies, there are these, there are these fin financial technology companies that a select few of them that are growing and having enormous success, just enormous success. One of them is called is a, it's called MX. It's a company based in Utah, right outside of Salt Lake City. It is not public. Um, I would not be surprised given what's going on in the IPO market if it were to go public relatively soon. But the other one is Encino. NCNO is the ticker, okay? It went public in July. I mean, you go around, you talk to community bankers, community bankers who can afford Encino, get Encino. Okay. Yeah. Community bankers who cannot afford Encino wish they could afford uh, afford Encino. It is a everybody knows Encino in the banking industry, um, and so it's just it is just a big important company that is just growing so 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 fast. In fact, to kind of tie a couple more one more loose end together, Fifth Third just announced that they are that they're using Encino. So it's going big banks, small banks, every bank wants Encino. Love to hear that. I certainly am familiar with the name, so I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, I am going to be paying attention to Visa, which uh, has earnings coming out later this week, Wednesday, October 28th here, um, after the market closes, I believe, is, is when uh, Visa earnings will come out. And really, uh, the, the, main, the main reason why I pay attention to Visa and, and MasterCard, a little bit different than American Express, as we noted, but um, very, very good indicators just of where the consumer's at right now. I mean, these are, these, are, these are two obviously very powerful brands with lots of cards all over the world. I mean, people are, are using these cards more and more, particularly now as, as sort of this migration away from cash continues. And we, of course, talk all the time about the war on cash here and We've had a lot of fun with the war on cash basket of stocks that we've uh, talked about as well. But but yeah, for me, I, I think it's really just just getting a glimpse of, of where management sees the consumer, how they see consumer spending uh, playing out. And as, as Visa and MasterCard continue to invest in these cross-border uh, capabilities as well, as we become a more you know, globalized society, so to speak, right? I mean, it's it's a big world, but it seems like technology is making it a lot smaller. And and so Visa and MasterCard are two companies that are really playing uh, a role in that. And, and with Visa earnings coming out, it's 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 the biggest the biggest card out there. Uh, MasterCard is a close second, but Visa is the leader the leader out there today. And so we'll be keeping an eye on on, on their earnings and uh, and their language regarding the consumer. But John, I think that's going to do it for us this week. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, jump on the show and share your insight. This was a lot of fun. That was terrific, Jason. Loved it. All right. Well, remember, you can always reach out to us, folks, on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. You can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com and let us know, you know, what are you keeping your eyes on this earnings season? It's, it's always interesting to know. Get some new stocks on the radar and uh, any, any show ideas, anything you need us to dig into, bring it up. We're happy to give it a look. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about or The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For my man, John Maxfield. Again, thanks so much, John. Really enjoyed it. I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.